talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is 900 CHML and a special hello to 980 CFPL listeners in London. This is Hamilton Today with Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson uh, all week. And, uh, well, the humid weather is here. and Hopefully we'll get a little bit of a respite. Uh, all of us need the rain desperately as we keep an eye to the sky this afternoon. And uh, hopefully we will get some um, a little bit uh, later on this afternoon. So we have uh, a lot on the program coming up today. Uh, coming up in a couple of minutes, we will ask you uh, one of the uh, questions from uh, today's uh, program. What are youth looking for when it comes to summer employment? What are the prospects for summer jobs for summer employment? Um, Halton Youth, there was a, a recent study uh, from the Halton region that said, Halton youth aged 15 to 24 had an unemployment rate of 11.8% during the first quarter of the year. That is a decrease of 20.1% unemployment rate. Is it more difficult for kids to find a summer job these days? Think back. What was your summer job uh, when you had uh, an opportunity? Think back. I know for some of us it's a long time ago, but kind of ponder that. And we'll also kind of maybe talk about the worst or best summer job that you ever had. Now, uh, this was announced uh, back last month on June 23rd, and it's probably a good time to kind of delve into it now that the the excitement for our listeners in London has uh, worn off a little bit. Western University and the City of London have been awarded the right to host the 2022 Vanier Cup at Western Alumni Stadium. First of all, they've changed the name of the stadium. They uh, got a, a nice grant from the Alumni Association of uh, $1.4 million. So for those of us that have called McMaster football games for years here on CHML, myself and Miles Gorell, we always called it that other name, as you know, but that has been renamed to the Alumni Stadium. I'm curious what they're doing for Vanier Cup. Will they expand the seating? It's about 10,000 seats now. Are they expanding some of the media facilities? Because you'll be having media coming in, obviously, from all around the country. What is being planned for that? Well, we'll hear from a spokesperson from Tourism London a little bit later on in the program. Also coming up a little bit later on this uh, program, later on today... We've had the story, and you've heard it on CHML, and you've heard it on CFPL in London, about what's been going on in B.C. with wildfires and 70-kilometer-an-hour winds. Well, there was a man who we will be introducing to you uh, a little bit later on who was literally involved in uh, trying to save his farm out in B.C. when those wildfires hit just about a year ago. He is uh, the subject of a very interesting uh, and at times very scary article in uh, the August McLean's magazine about what happened. Basically, they're standing there and they had videos and on Instagram and everything else showing the damage. And at one point, uh, they said, basically, we have to leave right now because the flames are here. And he had a 160-acre farm, which was virtually destroyed by the fire. What goes through your mind? when obviously something like that happens. We'll hear about that. We're also, uh, at the same time, he is one of uh, the people that will be joining us for our special event on uh, mental health, the mental health fundraiser that we are hosting on Wednesday, September 28th, The Long Road Back. His name is Marshall Potts. He's a singer from B.C. He's also a farmer. Uh, How do you recover from something like that? 
You know, he's, he's got such a great attitude because for most of us, we'd be really upset about this. So that is also uh, coming up a little bit later on uh, in the program. Also, there's been a lot of talk about this. And I'm kind of like, you know what? Mind your own business. The prime minister got a haircut. Why is there so much talk on social media about the way the guy looks? Huh? Why? What gives people the right to weigh in or think that they can weigh in? It's like I've heard the stories about television anchors, specifically female anchors, where somebody sends in a snotty email. Oh, you need to change the color of your hair. Oh, you need to change your haircut. Oh, putting on a few pounds, are we? Nobody's business. Why is this such a thing? Okay, he looks a little bit like the guy from uh, Dumb and Dumber. I get it. But still, did anybody complain when he grew the beard during the COVID? Remember when it first started and he was standing outside his residence in the cold in Ottawa and he had the beard? Did anybody complain about that? Huh? Why all of a sudden now is this such a thing? We'll find out coming up a little bit later on. As we say, our our listeners uh, to CFPL in London uh, are also uh, part of the program today. Maybe we can have some of them call in as well. And there's a controversial subject as well going on in the city of Hamilton. We're now basically, if you want to uh, go to Wild Waterworks and you want to get in on one of the uh, slides, you have to weigh in. And that caused a lot of controversy a Hamilton girl was one of the ones involved, and I can understand she was absolutely chagrined by what happened because she suffers from an eating disorder, and having to stand on the scale in front of everybody where they yell out your weight is certainly uh, not something that really is good for people's mental health. I mean, it, I understand why they're doing it, but there's got to be a better way. Well, we'll hear from somebody uh, who is uh, leading a charge and uh, leading a change.org uh, piece to change that at least the way it's done not necessarily disputing the uh, fact that there has to be a way in for people that are coming in to go on a particular slide because it's a whole um, safety issue but it's more or less the way that it's being done so we will hear uh, that story as well and we'll also talk about the uh, online uh, twitter poll today are you for or against the return of mandatory random rapid testing at canadian airports we'll get in the pool a poll result about that as well and uh, there's a lot going on it is a steamy monday as we mentioned we're halfway through july almost into august now this is really really uh, interesting so you know, we're getting through the year slowly, but surely. So there is a lot coming up on the program today. Well, it is the summertime. We're halfway through it. And I am I often wonder, and the problem here is when I start to talk, like you sound like one of those old guys, right? But back in the day, I, I don't try to do that. But I just look at summer students today. When I go for a run through a nice city-owned park and I see the students out there, you know, cutting the grass, pulling weeds, and having a good time. I wonder how many of those kids have summer jobs um, in the past. Did they have problems finding summer jobs? Are there a lot of summer jobs left unfilled? Well, joining us to talk about a recent survey done for uh, the region of Halton from StatsCan is uh, Jody Cock, the Director of Talent and Diversity from the region of Halton. Jody, good afternoon. Happy Monday. 
Good afternoon. Um, just to let you know, Ted, I'm actually from the city of Hamilton. Ah, okay. So we're, we're actually talking about Hamilton opportunities today. Yes, okay. Thank you very much. My apologies for that. So let's talk about that, uh, Jody. Let's uh, let's talk, first of all, about those numbers. Uh, the Halton Youth, and we're talking about the numbers for Halton Youth, from 15 to, to uh, 24, unemployment rate of 11.8%. Do those numbers surprise you? Not entirely, to be fair. Um, what we're finding is there there is still a real need to find opportunities for youth. And at the City of Hamilton, we've incorporated a couple of new programs this year in an effort to try to provide additional opportunities to, to young people that might be looking for, for their first job or potentially summer employment to help support them through schooling. Um, and so we've had to get a little bit more creative. Our traditional summer student program was really open to students that are currently enrolled and planning on returning to school in the fall. And typically, they would range in age from 18 to 24. But we were really mindful this year of the impact that the pandemic has had on students, and, and many have had impacts to their educational plans, where, where college and university were going to virtual settings. Or for one reason or another, students decided to perhaps take some time away from schooling um, and we really wanted to make sure that we were providing opportunities to help fill that gap as well. So we're really excited to have a couple of programs. One is a, a youth employment initiative that we're working on in conjunction with our largest local union, which is QP5167. So their union leadership was very supportive in looking at a program where we waive the requirement to be a student. And basically it's open for all, all youth aged 18 to 24 that might be looking for that, that summer job that potentially could turn to longer term, more stable employment, or just some great experience for a resume when they're starting out in their career. And then we're also really excited about a partnership with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, which is their focus on youth program. And it's really designed to support underserved or underrepresented youth. And it's really a great tie-in to the city's youth strategy in supporting employment and leadership and mental health for youth as well. So um, the, the numbers themselves don't surprise me, Ted, but I think employers and ourselves included need to look at other ways of providing. We're, we're really mindful of the impact that these early employment opportunities can make for the past um, for youth as they navigate their way in terms of deciding what careers or interests they may have. And we really see ourselves as a, a municipal employer playing a really key role in providing those opportunities. Our guest from the City of Hamilton and the Director of Talent and Diversity, Jody Koch, talking about uh, summer students and finding jobs. Jody, I know that the uh, uh, for the last two years, mercifully not this year the case, but the previous two years it was really tough for any employers to even think about what they plan on doing as far as getting through the next quarter, what have you. How difficult was it a couple of years ago from your, your evidence and and your uh, anecdotal evidence uh, for kids who wanted to find summer jobs but yet couldn't because of COVID? Well, it certainly was. In 2020 in particular, we were finding ourselves uh, with a really altered service delivery model. And so many programs that we rely on to employ summer students, we were actually redeploying full-time permanent staff that through no reason of their own couldn't couldn't take on the normal face-to-face um, -face frontline roles with community members simply because of the pandemic provisions. So we had used full-time permanent staff filling roles in our public works department, in our horticulture area, 
And so there was definitely an impact on the number of available opportunities for students. Happy to report this year, uh, we are we have hired uh, nearly 320 students in our public works department and nearly another 150 in our recreation department. And many of those in the recreation department are directly frontline staff supporting our summer programs for kids. So summer camps, our soupy programs that rotate through the various parks, waiting pool attendance, those sorts of things. So um, definitely a much different picture this year. But it was really challenging in 2020 and in 2021 to a lesser degree. And I think for some, it also impacted their ability to gain skills. You know, you're certainly seeing um, much news coverage with respect to lifeguard shortages across the, the province. And some of that's driven directly by the fact, you know, we weren't able to offer programming to help, you know, youth continue their path to, to gain some of those lifeguarding certifications and keep them up to date. So we're really happy this year is, is much more a return to pre-pandemic levels of service, but also mindful that there are some youth that um, need some additional support in order to make sure that they can provide uh, the skills that they need to be able to find employment, not not only for the summer, but hopefully to help lead them down the path that they wish to pursue longer term. Jody, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the SUPI program. I know there was talk a little while ago, and for our listeners in London that don't understand, it's it's basically, if you will, supervisors at parks and some of the yep. outdoor pools and uh, things like that, that there was a little bit of concern. Were there enough SUPIs to go around to take care of all the kids that were going? Um, has that problem been alleviated? Yeah, so we, we came up with some creative programming on our end and changed our modeling a bit. We've using program monitors and facility staff that would normally be supporting um, off-summer programming and using them to help support it. And this focus on youth program that we've partnered with the, the, the Hamilton School Board, that's also provided a, approximately 25 additional staff to help support those programs. So it's a little bit of a different model than we've used in past years, but happy to report it, it is definitely back and available and will be rotating throughout the parks in the summer. Tony Koch, Director of Talent and Diversity for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for the update on uh, City of Hamilton uh, jobs for kids. You know, And I mentioned when I run through Gage Park, I see the, the, the you know especially the university students out and they're raking yep. and enjoying the I thought you know what a great summer job that is you know it it is I mean they make great friendships they make great um, professional connections and many of our employees started their career at the city of Hamilton as a summer student many years ago um, so it definitely does create an opportunity and also just an awareness and we do still have summer student positions, postings that are available, our youth employment. And again, that's the one that you don't need to be a student for. That posting is still up and available, and we're encouraging folks to continue to apply because we will see additional needs as the summer progresses with some students going back to school in the fall, perhaps out of town. So we, we typically encounter a need to hire additional staff in August and into September through till October. Um, so if anyone's interested, they can go to uh, hamilton.ca website and look at summer opportunities and encourage folks to apply if you know anybody aged 18 to 24 that might be looking still for something to do for the summer. It's not too late to apply. Great uh, information. Jody. thanks very much. Have yourself a, a great day for what's left of it. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Ted, and all the best. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it was announced a month ago that Western University in the city of London had been awarded the right to host the Vanier Cup at Western Alumni Stadium Saturday, November 26th at 1 p.m. Joining us to talk about this exciting announcement is the Director of Sport Tourism for Tourism London, Xanth Jarvis. Xanth, first of all, thanks for joining us. Has a smile been wiped off your face yet, Xanth? <laughs> I, I thanks so much for having me. Uh, pleasure to to talk about this great event. And uh, no, not quite. I'm, uh, I'm I'm a Western alumni and played football myself, so certainly a, a very exciting uh, event to be kind of working on and looking forward to it. Now, I don't want to ask you your age, but is it fair to say that maybe you played back in the days of the JW Little Memorial Stadium? Not not oh. that long ago, actually. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, about ten years or so. So it's uh, it, uh, I've still been in that stadium, although it's gone a significant transformation, and we're excited to to showcase uh, the work that's been done there as part of hosting this event. Now, let's uh, first of all talk about the stadium. Those of us, of course, we, we've been doing the MAC games here on CHML for a long time. Miles Gorell and I always like to uh, take the trip down uh, the 401 to uh, a stadium that has now been changed to Western Alumni Stadium. I'm curious what's being done as far as uh, not necessarily reserva- uh, uh, renovations, but maybe uh, changes to the stadium. Will there be more seats added? What are they doing about the media box? Kind of fill us in that way. Yeah, well, if you haven't been there since the renovations have done, the first thing you'll notice is a ton of purple, a lot more purple. Uh, Oh, gee. (laughs) The track is completely purple. I think it's the only track in the world that's fully purple to kind of match the Western brand. So Mm -hmm. uh, certainly on brand with that. Uh, The field was completely done. There's uh, the lights. There's the the bleachers work to the media box. Um, some of the indoor spaces that overlook the lounge space that overlook the stadium as well. So a lot of those uh, those those spaces that needed some work uh, have been done and continue to be done uh, to prepare for this upcoming season. Now, when you're talking about the media box, I'm curious uh, because I know that uh, with the Vanya Cup, there'll be uh, media from a, a, a across the country, literally, and television and radio and everything else. Uh, will that be expanded at all, or will there be kind of a uh, another temporary press box added to uh, the stadium for that day? Yeah, so I think I'm not too sure exactly on the media box itself. Right. But I know there's work being done to, to make sure whether or not it's a full transformation or just a, a temporary fix to accommodate. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there'll be a ton of media in town for that. So we'll certainly be able to accommodate them uh, for this game. So let's uh, talk about the economic impact. I know um, this is a topic, uh, from what I understand, it was the worst kept secret in London for a while. Everybody kind of knew it was coming. But the economic impact for something like this, when you crunched the numbers, what jumped out at you as far as uh, economic feasibility for the Vanier Cup? Yeah, that was certainly one of the factors uh, that was kind of Tourism London's decision to pursue this event, but also just uh, being such a strong football community like Hamilton and, and London, just this this region. And the Vanier Cup's never been hosted in London before. And so listening to our community, that's something that they've wanted to see for a long time. And the opportunity presented itself. And I think uh, especially kind of coming off this pandemic, uh, sport tourism has been a strategy of ours to really uh, help enhance tourism in our city. So with this event coming up with the Briar, I think all of these these events happening in London on a sport uh, background are just going to provide a tremendous benefit to the industry that's been hit so hard these last, what is it, two, three years yep. now with yep. this pandemic. I'm wondering now, Zanth, what happens? Uh, uh, I know you can't give away all the stuff because you're probably still working on it, but tell us about some of the events that surround hosting something like a Vanier Cup in the city of London in November. 
Yeah, for sure. I think uh, Hamilton listeners are probably familiar as well, but we're certainly looking at then that template and seeing what worked. But uh, I know there was a there's a banquet we're going to be hosting an all Canadians gala, uh, a tailgate type of fan fest environment, uh, halftime show, which we're working on that now and, and securing talent and be excited to announce that when it comes up. Uh, and then just the celebration of football and not just London, but kind of across our community with, with partnering with other organizations that are going to be hosting football events and, and partnering with them to really just make it more than just a one day event, right? And really combines and coaches clinics and officials clinics and all those other pieces and activations for kids to throw a football through a target and really just again, celebrate football in, in, in the region in London, having never hosted the VNA Cup kind of for the first time to really all come together and make it a, a, a large celebration, especially coming off of a win. Uh, we're certainly hopeful that, uh, you know, Western can make it back in. And if not them, I think Hamilton and McMaster would also be a great fit too. <laughs> Very nicely politically said. Very good. <laughs> By the way, uh, you talk about uh, uh, the city of London never hosting a Vanier. People may be surprised, but uh, Western's appeared in 15 Vanier Cups. We've called a couple of them here on CHML being held in Hamilton, and, and they've won Eight of 15. You know, when you look back at uh, Western, a lot of people get mad because Western wins, as they say, all the time. But there's a reason for that. And, and I'm sure you can relate to, as you say, you played for Western. Just what is it about that school and embracing athletics and what makes them so powerful year after year? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's everyone that's kind of come before also plays a role. I think uh, uh, do a great job recruiting. I think some of the best players want to come to to this region to compete against the best and play against the best. It's a it's a great community, as I mentioned, that's really kind of bought in and supports the team. And, um, you know, we've had some great legendary coaches, which unfortunately some, some news with them passing recently. But yep. I think in the last, you know, 40 years, we've had three coaches at Western. Right? So it just kind of shows the stability and the, the prestige and really uh, clearly something's going on right there. And I think it starts kind of with, with coaching and the program, the community, and, and, and all of that has helped us kind of recruit the best players and carried on the, the winning tradition. Our guest is uh, Xantha Jarvis, the Director of Sport Tourism for Tourism London, talking about the Vanier Cup being held in Western Saturday, November 26th. Now, Xanth, I have never been there, but apparently when I mention this name, everybody smiles because they know about the history, if you will, of this particular organization. I'm sure that the denizens of the bar known as Seeps will probably have a good time hosting and taking part in this event this week. Is that a fair statement? I think uh, that's, that's one of our must-visit attractions for sure when you're coming to, to London and Western for, for football. Certainly a place that I myself have frequented over the years. Um, but yeah, that's you know part of the tradition as well is, is the seeps and with Western. And, and you know we're really looking forward to showcasing kind of all of uh, all of what we have to offer. You know, like I said, not just the game itself, but really our community and the restaurants and the, the, the attractions, uh, the seats being one of them and all the other great places to visit while you are in town. So it's really going to be, uh, you know, a great celebration of football and, and to celebrate kind of, uh, and, and showcase all that London has to offer and our football community has to offer. Well, I certainly hope, uh, you know, those of us, uh, myself and Miles, and uh, if I, you know, nothing against a host team, 
uh, a home team hosting the game, but we would like to have somebody else play. You know, so we'd <laughs> like to come down from from Hamilton, from Mac, be a part of the festivities, and call the game uh, at uh, Alumni Stadium. We'll see what happens. Xanth Jarvis, we'll see you regardless during uh, Vanier Cup week. Thanks for the time, and uh, I know it's July, I know it's hot, but uh, this is uh, a lot of work that has yet to be done. So have at it, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Stay up to date on Tourism on and Socials and VanierCup.com as well when tickets go on sale in a few weeks. We will do that. Thanks uh, very much, Zant. Have a great afternoon. You as well. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, there's been uh, some controversy brewing at Wild Waterworks at Confederation Park because there's weight restrictions on the attractions. Riders at Wild Waterworks say they are subjected to public weight checks. An incident involving a, a local family was brought to uh, attention recently. A 15-year-old refused to publicly weigh herself because of an ongoing battle with anorexia. That raised the ire of our next guest, who has now launched a petition online to get things changed. He's a resident of War 5. His name is Kevin Genan, and he joins us uh, this afternoon on Hamilton Today. Kevin, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm I'm good, but obviously a little bit discouraged uh, by this issue that you know came to my attention last night. So now, uh, I I know why people are upset, but kind of was there something that really got you upset that made you think you know what something's got to be done and something's got to be changed here? Yeah. So I mean, it's understandable that people need to be weighed for safety purposes. And I believe that the arrangement that they had before was that they were just picking out, you know, specific people from line and only weighing them like on a case by case basis. And that's obviously an issue for its own reasons. Right. And now they have resorted to weighing everyone. But the main issue here and the one that came up yesterday in the story that you just talked about is the way in which the weighing was being done. So apparently, number one, the, the main issue was that the number of pounds is visible to you know the person who's standing on the scale, and that is problematic for you know the reason that you mentioned. And number two, apparently, there were uh, you know slide attendants saying the weight out loud. Now, obviously, I'm not able. To verify that I wasn't there, but that's the other thing that's particularly troubling. Now, that could be, uh, of course, rather uh, traumatic. It could be embarrassing for somebody who, as we mentioned, uh, the 15-year-old girl who suffers from anorexia, who probably doesn't obviously want people to know what she weighs. Uh, is this uh, is this maybe something as simple as, in your opinion, maybe, you know what, maybe there should have been some more training done here first with the staff before they, they go on to do something like this? Um, it might not necessarily be the training, but simply the, you know, equipment that is available, the equipment that they use at Wild Waterworks. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that Wild Waterworks is not the newest water park in the world. Mm-hmm. So they, there's, there's other water parks that have, you know, industrial scales, like a big platform that you know, people c- can stand on, and then it's only seen by the slide attendants, that, like the number of pounds on the scale and that's something that wild waterworks i believe doesn't have so they're just using uh, i believe regular 
household scales where someone can use uh, can you know stand on it and sees the number on that scale, uh, and that that can obviously be the more or that is obviously like the main issue I think is that the equipment that they have available to them and so there have to potentially be some other system in place. Uh, I know other water parks use a red light or green light, but even something as simple as I was just looking up on, you know, on Amazon, even something as simple as a different type of scale where the monitor is removed from the user, like by a cord, such that, you know, the lifeguards at the top of the slide can simply see the numbers in private themselves and are able to still facilitate safe access of the slide without you know, the slide user, you know, going into the water park on a nice sunny day and, you know, waiting, you know, in line for the slide and then having to be, you know, stared down by the number on on the scale, right? What happens, uh, and again, this is uh, your opinion, uh, what happens if there is uh, somebody who just doesn't want to have their weight Totally, because I understand that they're uh, this mm-hmm. is this is for the, the water slide, so uh, they have to make sure that obviously that there's you know not a lot of people up there at the same time and kind of uh, taking it through that way. Mm-hmm. But but the fact that uh, you know somebody uh, has to actually be sub- subjected, regardless to uh, their size, to an actual uh, weight um, verification, is that in itself, in your opinion, problematic? I mean, that in and of itself can be seen as slightly problematic and can still be triggering to people, even if they're not seeing the number on the scale. But at that point in the debate, I think if if people are declining being uh, or declining stepping on the scale, even if you know there's something like a red light, green light thing, or even if the number is removed so it's like the attendance and we see even after those steps are are taking place that they still don't want to step on the scale and you know it's a much i think finer debate um a much grayer area where then you have to bring the safety issues into the debate and then those safety issues kind of overrule in my opinion the issues surrounding weighing. No, I, but I think the main issue uh, that in the story yesterday was the user being subjected to having to, you know, stare down the number themselves. Now, I understand the petition uh, you have started, you wanted to get uh, uh, 100, you have 32 signs so far. Uh, in essence, tell us the changes that you would like to have made to the policy at Wild Waterworks. Yeah, so in the short term, and as I just said, I was looking on, you know, Amazon, there's, uh, you know, like a shipping scale for under $100 with a monitor that is attached with a cord where the lifeguards at the top of the slide could, uh, can um, see, or I don't, they might have moved it to the bottom of the wing, but where, where the lifeguards can see the number without the person having to see the number. I think that's definitely the first step in the short term. And uh, apparently, according to, uh, to Amazon, this can arrive as early as tomorrow. So um, I don't think um, that's, you know, too much of a problem to, to fix this in the short term. 
and maybe in the long term something more uh, substantial, uh, I guess, investment-wise in terms of money and, and also technology-wise needs to maybe be considered and implemented like, you know, a green light, red light system with like an industrial uh, scale. But yeah, definitely in the short term, removing the, the, the user from the number on the scale, I think is a pretty simple thing that can be done and something that actually would go a long way. All right, uh, Kevin Genum has started the petition about the Wild Waterworks weighing policy. We'll see what happens uh, with this story as it unfolds. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us, and enjoy the rest of the day for what it's worth. Thank you very much, Yes, but will they join the LRT train? Join hands. The LRT subcommittee is asking staff to report back on how recent decisions about the city streets will impact the design of the LRT. This committee has seen the existing plans for the 14-kilometer, 17-stop route. The LRT will run alongside one lane of traffic in some spots and separate multiple lanes at other points. Now, the acting director of transportation operations, Mike Field, acknowledges the conversion of Main Street to two-way is going to impact those design plans and will need to be completed first. To help uh, deal with the, uh, the the construction of LRT and, and the traffic uh, that um, would be impacted on King Street during the construction of LRT. So that's the intent is that uh, partial conversion would happen prior to or, or just during construction. Other factors expected to impact the financial, uh, the final look of LRT include the transport truck ban on downtown streets, and the city's new guide to street building that aims to improve pedestrian safety. So LRT continues to be not necessarily top of mind, but certainly uh, on the discussion uh, panel um, and the discussion table. And joining us for a few minutes to talk about this is uh, Ward uh, 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who joins us. Uh, Mr. Danko, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Ted. I'm doing well. You know, it's been a. I don't think we've ever had a chance to uh, have a chat with you. So, um, is <laughs> the summer is going by? Uh, LRT is it? Is everything calm as far as the LRT file? Because I know sometimes it can get people uh, really upset. <laughs> the summer is going by, and a municipal election's coming up in the fall. So, yes, LRT is is once again uh, a hot topic in the city of Hamilton. Um, so, the LRT subcommittee is a subcommittee of council that has a mandate to review the plans as we work towards uh, the construction and implementation of this $3.4 billion investment in the city of Hamilton. And just off the top, uh, you know, as we do go into that municipal election season, LRT is moving forward. We are in the process of implementing that project right now. Uh, property has been uh, acquired. Work is starting on some of the preliminary work. So any candidate that, uh, you know, comes to your door and promises that if elected, we're going to stop LRT, they're uh, not being quite uh, truthful with that statement. So, well, that, well, that was my next question, is there is one candidate who is uh, talking about that, and I was going to ask, and you kind of answered it, uh, not necessarily damage, but but how much cold water uh, is this individual pouring on the LRT um, uh, uh, plans and file? Well, LRT is moving forward, and that's the, uh, the will of council. Even the councillors that were uh, apprehensive about this project uh, have, have moved on, and uh, uh, now the problem uh, or, or opportunity, I guess, would be working towards making this project as best that it can be for the residents of City Hamilton. And that's what we're working towards now. 
So let's talk about the conversion of Main Street. We talked about this on CHML News uh, a long time ago. Uh, we, unfortunately, because of well, I shouldn't say a long time ago, a while ago, because of all the problems and the uh, the fatal accidents and the uh, fatal collisions that we've had, and just the horrendous number on the road, uh, the conversion of Main Street to two-way traffic. I'm wondering, from your standpoint, have you heard a lot from your constituents? Either way, concerns or thumbs up about converting Main Street to two-way. I think the top priority of residents, uh, especially the, the residents of Ward 8 that I hear from, is their safety on the roads in Hamilton. Uh, whether they're a driver, motorcycle, pedestrian, cyclist, whatever, people are very concerned about uh, safety. And that's uh, the decision that council made to convert Main Street to two-way was all about improving the safety on that corridor And that's a pretty significant change from 2019 when we uh, initially agreed to move forward with with LRT. Along with that, we now have a complete streets report that prioritizes uh, the pedestrian realm, sidewalks, space for people and uh, and business. And that's quite a bit different than some of the initial plans for LRT as well, along with, as you mentioned off the top, the the truck truck route uh, uh, routing through downtown. So those are some pretty significant changes that have to be um, taken in consideration by the design team and by Metrolinx as we implement this project. Now, when we start to uh, finally get to Main Street done, if you could, uh, Councillor, take us through uh, how Main Street then physically will look. If Main Street is uh, taken from uh, the one-way to two-way that uh, is proposed, uh, how will the LRT run uh, in conjunction with that particular lane, uh, the changing of uh, traffic? Well, LRT is on the King Street route. Uh, which is already going to be converted to two-way. That was already planned as part of the LRT project. So now that we're converting Main Street to two-way, it significantly helps us with uh, actually the construction phase of the project because it takes away some of the, you know, if we had all one-way traffic moving eastbound on Main Street and, and no dedicated westbound traffic on King Street, then obviously <laughs> that, that uh, alignment doesn't quite work. So now that it's balanced with two-way traffic, it significantly gives us more options to manage the construction and then the final project, what, uh, what that's going to look like. So what are we talking, uh, and I know things can change and plans are made and, and, you know, everything can, you know, be on the up and up and then something happens as far as, you know, I don't weather or what have you, but if we're looking now at actually physically the start for LRT, you mentioned uh, um, that the properties have uh, been purchased. What are we talking about the earliest that perhaps shovels could be in the ground for the uh, construction of LRT? Those properties on the King Street Corridor have been purchased. Some demolitions are beginning, uh, so that's that's already underway. There's some preliminary works with underground uh, geotechnical investigations, uh, some utility relocations that's already started as well. But uh, the actual construction um, of what people would consider, you know, you know, starting to build the tracks kind of thing uh, would be in 2024. So we're still a little bit of time uh, off from that. And in the meantime, this is a design-build project. So it means that as we are doing... Uh, Moving into the construction phase, we're still finalizing the design work, and that's where uh, the work of the LRT subcommittee comes in in trying to make sure that the uh, the design and the final layout of the project 
again, meets the needs of the residents of the city of Hamilton and also Metrolink. And just before we wrap up, Councillor, as you mentioned, there is an election coming up. I know it's early with the campaign hustings, but uh, is there one major issue that you're hearing about, uh, not necessarily door-to-door, but when the emails get sent or the phone calls, right now, when it comes to the residents of Ward 8, what is the major concern that they are uh, telling you about? Well, no question. The top concern that I hear uh, from residents um, pretty much daily is road safety and and traffic safety. So I think that's something that as a council, we've taken very seriously and uh, obviously still have more work to do. All right, Councillor for Ward 8, John Paul Danko, thank you for the update about LRT as the conversations will continue. We'll keep an eye on that going forward. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There's only one guy that I would like, well, aside from Rick Samprin, only okay, maybe two, Scott Radley. There's three guys that I would like to talk football with when we have a chance to do that. I haven't seen this guy in, oh, I'd say probably oh, about seven years now. It's been that long. Joining us uh, from the Hamilton Spectator, the erstwhile columnist, Mr. Steve Milton Milt. How are you? It's been a long time. And it has a long time since I've uh, heard your voice, let alone see in present. You never get down here. You never get down to the, the place where I live 24 hours a day. <laughs> you know what? I, I actually chose not to because I kind of got away from it from a while. But I I kind of miss the the uh, joie de vivre, as it were, the, the bon vivants that are down, the wags that are in the uh, Tim Hortons press box. So maybe one day I'll get a chance to come down and say hi, just because it's been such a long time. That's, that's wags as in tongues wagging. so listen let's uh talk about friday uh saturday's game against ottawa Mm -hmm. you know and uh i i don't know if it's a case of ottawa not winning or the tiger cats you know basically throwing the game away but this was not a classic and i know the tiger cats got away with the skin of their teeth and i know a victory is a victory but boy they still got a lot of work to do don't they Oh, yeah, they do, and and uh, you know one of the things that that you know every I think everybody said and wrote that that, that says and writes things uh, is that the the one difference here is that I mean this thing looked like a template of the previous four games that yep. had and, and of the Great Cup, uh, and it just had the same feel to it. You know the uh, the uh, key interceptions at bad times, a penalty at a bad time, a, a, a bad, 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 bad. Uh, Dean Evans turnover, uh, the offense going stale in the third quarter, a lead uh, blown, um, all of those things. It had all the templates of the, of, of the previous five losses um, for this year, one last year, at the end last year. And the thing that was different is they had that good march near the end, and they sort of made a stand to prevent the other team from coming back. Now, that said, it was Ottawa, and Ottawa has not learned to win. And maybe in the process still of, uh, of, of continuing to learn, to learn how to lose. That's the big difference. And I think that's the, only, that's the big thing that I think this team's trying to take away from it. Uh, from it. And so they made some pretty good adjustments uh, on offense in the first half. I don't know where those adjustments went in the second half, but they, they seem to fizzle away. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a tie cat, you know, I'm objective on this thing. So, I look at it and I see a lot of the same problems that were there. I think some of them are are being addressed, um, and it's hard to know 
what sort of effect mentally this will have emotionally in that sense. I think less of a sense of, uh, of in a positive that a win can give you than than the impact would have been negatively had they lost. Am I making sense on that? Yep, that it would have yep. been worse. It would have been worse negative impact than it is a good positive impact. But here's Dane Evans knowing that at times the line can protect them, which it did for 30 minutes. And uh, um, um, and if they continue continue that, uh, and I don't know why it didn't continue in the second. They they went away. They took away the tight end. Which was odd, uh, and some decisions there. But but there were uh, you know some obviously some some questionable things. Uh, you know if John Ryan's back punt too that'll make a difference. Although punting wasn't a problem in this game, I thought Michael Domagala handled himself extremely well for being thrown into that fire. He didn't punt it in a game all year, and and being thrown into that fire basically 24 hours before the game. You know, Steve, one thing that um, I, I, I did notice, and I don't know if people picked up on it or not, uh, but I really question, and this is where uh, I sometimes wonder if maybe the best before date for Paolo Apolis, uh has now come and gone. Because late in the fourth quarter, when Ottawa was backed up, so they were going basically from the south end to the north end. It was a second and three situation. They were uh, at their own... Um, I believe the 11-yard line. They were in a bunch formation. The entire world knows that they're going to run the football. There was no, that there was nothing to it. It was basically mano against mano. You bunch it up. They give the ball to Powell. No gain. Seems to me they make the first down there. They can pretty well salt it away. Oh, absolutely. I was and and I was just talking to somebody from Ottawa before you called and somebody inside the Ottawa organization and and they were pointing out that was their second, second and three. They had one in the first half that that, that cost them. Uh, I think it made the field goal longer, and and they made some. I mean, they made they had some things go wrong there too. But I thought Ottawa did well under the circumstances. They had, they lost about five players during that game, and they were going with a guy who that was his first start all yep, year, a quarterback. Yep, yep. So you know, I think what Hamilton fans are saying, and and boy, there were a lot of people pretty negative in the stands. Uh, particularly about the offense, and and uh, of course then they bring in Kari Jones today, and Kari Jones, and that gets all sorts of speculation going, which of course we've had to address, and and um, you know as as, as uh, media people, and and uh, it just sort of you know uh, the, the people were restless. They were really there were a lot of boos uh, when Edmonton came back for that victory. Yep. And there was a lot of boos and using people by name actually uh, in in the stands uh, late in the in the game here. And the, those that, that stayed were rewarded. If you stood back and watched this thing, it's a pretty good uh, CFL game. Yep. You know, if you had no 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 quote unquote skin in the game, uh, you for either team. But for you know for either team, I think it was pretty. And for Hamilton, they get the win. And now does that put them back on their feet? The jury's way out on that one. Our guest is uh, Steve Milton, the columnist from the Hamilton Spectator. And, uh, Steve, you mentioned Kahari Jones. People are just joining us today, and you haven't heard. Kahari Jones, recently fired in Montreal, has been hired by the Tiger Cats as a football operations specialist. My opinion, Steve, this is what I'm saying, and so people can, you know, say what they want. This is my opinion. Once again, the Tiger Cats have become too top-heavy. Another guy with a title in the organization. Uh, they seem to embrace that, and 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 uh, I know what you're saying, Ted, on that, and uh, and I get that. But it's pretty clear that this is Orlando's team here, and it's pretty clear that above him is Scott Mitchell, as as ultimately his team. 
um, that, and I think the flip side of what you're seeing is that, you know, Orlando, I mean, we've already seen here that they, that, that there could be a head coach in waiting already here. This is what, when he hired, he's not afraid of that. Uh, with when when Mark Washington was brought in as DC, and there's been, you know Mark has been trying to be head coach for some time, and he's you know comes out of the same kind of mold as as, as uh, Orlando and this kind of thing. So that's that's part of it. I, I you know uh, it, it's more to, it's Tommy Condell's job. I think that's the speculation that's really up. okay. All right, you know because 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 people have really been hard on this offense, and for very good. All right, we'll leave it on that. Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator. I do hope uh, at some point to get down, uh, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, has a, a, an extra pass and I can come down and, and say hi and just catch up with everybody because it's been a long time. Thanks for this, Daddy, Steve. You're always welcome here. We're All right. Instagram. Stay well, Steve. Thanks very much. There's Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about the Prime Minister's haircut. is the uh, Well, she is a pop culture guru. She knows everything about politics and PR and how the two combine. And the first time I've had a chance to chat with Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa, how are you? Stop him. All right, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. So first of all, off the top, this story is on DailyMail.com in Britain. Hair today, gone tomorrow. They're comparing the haircut with just Jim Carrey's bowl cut. Alyssa, at the risk of sounding old and crusty, what does it matter how he cuts his hair? At the risk of also sounding old and crusty, really? This is the news cycle today? It absolutely boggles my mind. So, you know, okay, he... This actually goes back a, a little bit because I remember working in the news center and it was virtually almost every day or at least once a week when COVID first started and we would have the shots of the prime minister standing in front of his residence and he would have, of course, his longer hair, but he would have the beard and people were commenting on the beard then. What is it that gives people that think they have the inalienable right to actually make a comment about how somebody looks? You know what, like ever since the sort of advent of social media, suddenly the way you look has become fodder for discourse. So, uh, and normally it's very mean. It's regularly, it's not regularly very nice. So when people see a change in somebody's appearance, the first thing they do is they go on social media and they start to skewer that person. They can do it, you know, they themselves don't have to reveal who they are, but they're very uh, intent on sharing their opinion. And Honestly, you know, when you look at the news cycle today about, you know, what people want to be talking about, you know, talking about facial hair or, you know, hair on top of your head is certainly a diversion from the bad news that seems to be swirling around us on a daily basis. You know, I've kind of compared this on the air a while ago, Alyssa, and I know that you've heard and read the stories where, for example, I'm not trying to be sexist here, but it seems to be the case where a female television news anchor would change her haircut or change the hairstyle, or color her hair, or wear something different, and then all of a sudden that opens the door to people to make come. Oh, she's been on a few pounds. Oh, are you pregnant? Oh, why did you? Again, who the hell cares? Who's whose business is this? 
Well, gee, now that you put it that way, I'm glad to see some gender parity that it's just not always females that are getting the skewering. And yes, it it does become fodder. And the way that a woman looks has to appear appear to conform to a certain ideal about the way we think women should look. However, when a man changes his appearance, it's not necessarily comparing him to, uh, you know, not necessarily just skewering whether they like the look or not. But in this case, they are comparing uh justin trudeau to jim carrey but i need to tell you that is a far cry for me i mean that honestly i can't help but think that a lot of those pictures were actually photoshopped you know i'm and i'm looking at the picture of justin trudeau's hair okay so you know it's it's not it's different it's short but you know what It, it if he changed them and and here's the funny part Alyssa, is there are people, of course, we know what conspiracy theorists are like. There are conspiracy theorists now claiming that he changed his haircut to give people a chance to talk about something else the way he looks rather than what he should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to running the country. How ridiculous is that? Well, you know, I can understand why some people are thinking about that and trying to put another layer onto uh, coming up with an interesting narrative such as this. But, you know, the other thing that we also know about Trudeau is that when he does something different with his appearance, some people think that that means that there's an election uh, coming down. And I remember when he suddenly shaved his beard yep. after, you know, during COVID and then he cleaned up his hair. Um, that is also some people look at that as a bit of a is this are we coming to an election signal now that the Tories are still in disarray and before the leader can really get any wind into his sails? That could be an interesting theory, too. You know, I, I, because, of, of course, we know that uh, he and uh, the NDP have formed a, a coalition. So let's hope that we don't go to the uh, extreme of going to another election. You know, what surprises me about Trudeau, uh, when you look at the stories, uh, he's 50 years of age. So some would say, aha, it's an early uh, crisis, uh, midlife crisis for Trudeau. But uh, he kept his hairstyle for the same, you know, roughly since 2015. And again, if he changes it at the age of 50 and makes it look younger, why is that such a bad thing? Well, it's not such a bad thing. And I think that, you know, we are except with, uh, you know, we are um, obsessed with being younger and youth and beauty in our culture. So anytime that you don't really want to look your age, you do something. Sometimes you put a little filler. Sometimes you do a little Botox or you change your haircut and, you know, people will come up to you and say, oh, you look 10 years younger. And does that make you feel good? Of course it does. Nobody's not going to want to look younger. So the appearance of being youthful and vibrant and, um, you know, attractive and something that would also attract uh, Canadians and or voters uh, definitely plays a part in this. So, Alyssa, just before we wrap up, uh, let's talk, let's move away a little bit from uh, the Prime Minister here uh, and look at uh, possibly some of the other big stories that are trending uh, the last few hours, the last few days, or maybe down the road a little bit on social media, which we know, of course, can change at the drop of a hat. Yes. I mean, you know what? I mean, listen, Ukraine is still an issue. It's still a worldwide global issue, but this has been happening now for a few months. So what happens? There seems to be uh, some interest waning in that. Um, Biden goes to Saudi Arabia. He fist fist bumps, uh, you know, his his political peer, and suddenly that has shockwaves going around the world. So it's it's interesting what... um, 
you know, the attention span of a voters and B as regular public as news watchers, you know, our, our attention span is, is short mm. and it, you know, we, we tend to sort of cotton on to what the flavor of the day is. And I'm always very interested to see the jockeying of headlines of what supersedes something else. And while Ukraine is an issue, it's definitely losing, I think, absolute interest um, in the minds of many people, although it's still trying to gain um, above the fold headlines at the papers. So I, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like playing a game as to what you think is, um, uh, should be of main importance when you're reporting in the media. And today it's all about a haircut. This is why, uh, Alyssa, this is why I wallow in obscurity. So nobody knows who I am, and I like it like that. So leave it like that. <laughs> cut your hair. Yeah. Cut your hair. There's not much left to cut. <laughs> Alyssa Freeman, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, hopefully next time we talk, it'll be about something a little more important than uh, the Prime Minister's haircut. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so there you have it. Uh, you know, Google some pictures of Justin Trudeau. Google some pictures of uh, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber and... Uh, you tell me if you think that there is a resemblance because I don't see it at all. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Um, here's where we're at. There's the fire still sparking here and there. So it's come through the valley. It's coming in behind us. So this is likely to be... We're trying to protect cows. So we got to go. Cows will go out the back. That should be okay. okay? And we'll be okay. So let's get going and that's what happened uh, about a year ago uh, in uh, British Columbia, and it was an absolutely horrendous uh, story. And joining us is the guy that whose voice you just heard who was doing a lot of Instagram videos capturing what happened during that particular event, and his name is Marshall Potts, and he joins us from uh, British Columbia. Marshall, first of all, thank you. I hope you and your wife are doing well after all you've gone through. Uh, thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, we're doing great now. We've, we've really bounced back. So let's uh, talk about that. You were um, you moved up to what they call the Dalai Lama called it God's country, north of Kamloops. You bought 160 acres of land. You went out for a picnic lunch one day because it was so hot. It was 44 degrees, and you come back, and you see the start of a wildfire in B.C. I can't imagine what went through your mind at that point. Yeah, at first I, I, I saw the smoke. I went to, to get some water just out of the kitchen sink, I looked out the window, saw the plumes of smoke just past a couple of lakes in front of us. And I thought, yeah, that, that looks too big. That's not somebody doing a burn or something. And, uh, yeah, so immediately we just jumped on the ATV and drove right toward it to see, okay, what am I looking at? And then uh, my wife stayed behind, and uh, and she was waiting to call it in as soon as I came back. And as I'm driving now, she could see, yeah, you better call this in. Now, I understand uh, that it got obviously worse and worse and worse, uh, the blaze had spread, and then they basically came to your door and kind of uh, knocked on your door and said, you have to leave right now. Is that pretty much how it happened? Yeah, well, once we called it in, um, we, we started to have the, the people show up that would show up to respond. Uh, the, uh, the wildfire team started to show up. And because we were right close to it, they set up their whole command center right on a, in our front, you know, field and yard, basically. So we were in, we could see everything that was happening. We knew what they were doing. And uh, they warned us. They said, if this does get worse. But at, the, at, at first they said, you know, we think we got this. And then, you know, it was one day like that. And we went to bed, hard to sleep. 
And then we got up the next morning and the fire just took off. And that's when they said, hey, if this crests over the ridge here, you got to go. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because in the McLean's magazine coming up, uh, it's the August issue, it's available now. Uh, they're basically looking at this one year uh, after the event. Now, I understand uh, that when you basically were told you have to leave, and this is a question I mentioned on the air earlier, Marshall, is I don't know if people have ever thought about this, but the question goes through your mind, obviously getting out safe, but what do you grab? In this case, what did you basically grab and take with you when you left? Uh, the first thing we thought of, well, the first thing my wife thought of was the photos, and I went for my guitars and amp. <laughs> yeah, I went for my favorite guitar, two favorite guitars, and two favorite amps, basically. Now, I, uh, one of the things that you also had to do is, um, of course, um, talk about, uh, with your wife, about what do you save as far as you had cows on your ranch and other animals. Uh, kind of, what was the situation with that? Obviously pretty grim at the time. Yeah. I mean, suddenly you realize that everybody's in danger. It's not just us. And, you know, we're allowed to leave, but what do we do with the animals, right? We have 20, I think we had 23 chickens and you know, a couple of cats that we couldn't grab because with all the chaos and all the helicopters and all the noise, they, they just ran away. We had our two dogs, a pregnant St. Bernard and 21 cattle. And we had to sort of just, uh, you know, make sure the gates were open so they could get out if they needed to run. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're faced with. You, your, um, your acreage was 160. Um, I, how much was left when you finally got a chance to go back after things kind of calmed down a bit? Well, we, we were coming back every couple of days as a wellness check to make sure the chickens had water and feed and to make sure that the cattle were okay and just to just kind of sneak in, sneak out type thing while everything was happening. And really, it lasted. We were out for two months. Wow. Uh, so this place was burning for two months. And by time, every time we came back, we were like, oh, well, it's not so bad. You know, there's some of it left. And then the next time you come back and, oh, no, that's gone now. And it was that kind of thing. So, um yeah, until it was pretty much 95% burned. What about your actual place that you lived in? What about your 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 cabin or your home, as it were? Uh, that was the 5% that survived, <laughs> you know, if you think of 160 acres. So, yeah, they saved the house, which we were grateful for. But um, there was still a ton of damage done to it, so we had to live through that. Now, uh, it, yeah, what goes through your mind? Obviously, I don't have to ask this question. Uh, what I led into the article, uh, the the interview with, was the fact that this is now happening again, not necessarily near where you are, but the wildfires are happening again in British Columbia this year. I can't even ask, I begin to fathom what's going through your mind now when you see that really, in some ways, nothing's changed. Yeah. Well, no, it's, uh, you know, it can't, I really hope this isn't a new normal. How's that? Because it is devastating. I mean, the entire area has changed completely. Now, there's always something positive that comes out of the negative here. And, you know, we have felt that. So, you know, within within the the uh, the horrible experience itself, we have found some, you know, some shining light moments. And, and in the end, you know, we have a beautiful rolling hills with no trees, but like we have views off the property we didn't know we had. So we're trying to we're trying to grab onto those things, and I hope everybody that is faced with any problem in their life they can find that silver lining 
too. I uh, can't even imagine what was going through your mind as far as anxiety and the whole mental health thing, because I'm sure, Marshall, there must have been moments where you think to yourself, oh, my Lord, this is not going to end well. Yeah. You know, I'm a really positive person. I've worked really hard at being positive. I know I've been down in the dumps and I clawed my way out like many people do in life and I changed everything. And I, it, you know, I, I said this before, like it was a punch in the gut because I thought, geez, I'm so positive. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And here it is. The one thing that I find my, the little oasis that we have here is just all on fire. But you know, in the end, um, I think that skill that I had helped me help me bounce out of it and help my wife deal with it quicker than it than it could have been. And it's going to be uh, great to finally meet you because we, uh, for many reasons, you wrote an album about what happened called The Storm, which is getting a lot of airplay, especially in Europe. And I know you're going to Europe uh, coming up next month. But in yep. September, you'll be joining us on stage at the Burlington Performing Arts Center for The Long Road Back. It'll be yourself and the Spoons are returning home. And I have a chance to host that event as we raise funds for the Canadian Mental Health Association. So, Marshall, really looking forward to seeing you take the stage. Uh, you know, just so you know, I play a mean set of claves. So, if you need something that's got a Spanish flavor, I'm there for you. <laughs> awesome. Okay, we'll have to make that happen. <laughs> Marshall, thanks for the time. Stay healthy. We'll see you in September. Appreciate it. You too. Thanks for uh, having me. There you have it, Marshall Paul. An incredible story. 160 acres, 95% of it gone. Wow. You know, uh, people who know me know how much I um, admire Jennifer Lopez, how much I like Jennifer Lopez. Well, (laughs) if you haven't heard it, I'm absolutely crestfallen. I'm crestfallen. After two decades of tabloid covers and marriages to other people, J-Lo and Ben Affleck got married Saturday night. Oscar Wells Gabriel tells us the two became an item about two decades ago. When they first began dating in the early 2000s, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were known as Benifer, but after an engagement, their romance fizzled out. Affleck went on to marry Jennifer Garner, a union that produced three children. J-Lo had been married three times before she got hitched to Affleck over the weekend in Las Vegas. A marriage license filing showed Lopez plans to take the name Jennifer Affleck. I mean, generally when people get married, you're supposed to be nice to them. No, I can't wish them luck. Because I, <clears throat> never mind. Uh, Bass Pro, Pro Shops is uh, facing a lawsuit over a pair of socks. A Missouri man has filed a lawsuit against Bass Pro Shops, alleging that the outdoor goods retailer isn't living up to the word lifetime in its lifetime warranty on socks. Ken Slaughter of Springfield says in the suit that after years of exchanging his socks whenever they wore out, the last time he came in, he was given a new pair that only had a 60-day warranty, according to the Springfield News leader. He says it's unfair because the company says in its ads that they are, quote, the last sock you'll ever need to buy. Bass Pro says the company won't comment on pending litigation. Mark Remillard, ABC News. Really? That's almost as bad as the segment we had a while ago, people talking about the haircut of the prime minister. Does this guy have nothing better to do with his life? I, we'll see if he wins that lawsuit. Well, from our Yo! Adrian department, Sylvester Stallone is not happy with the producer of Rocky. 
He says he's been knocked out of his legacy. Wish me luck. I'm going to need it. Sylvester Stallone's latest fight, taking on 93-year-old Rocky producer Erwin Winkler. Stallone wrote and starred in all six Rocky films, but wasn't ever a producer on the movies. A fact that's apparently an open wound with Stallone. In several Instagram posts, he goes after Winkler and Winkler's son David, who's a producer on the Creed spinoff films, calling Erwin a remarkably untalented parasite. Stallone says he'd like at least a little of what's left of his Rocky rights back to pass along to his children, not Winkler's children. And he says if it weren't for Winkler, there would have been at least another three Rocky movies, which would have been wonderful. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. Well, that's vicious, what he said. That's not very nice at all. Uh, Sylvester Stallone against a 93-year-old guy. Um, That is not, not, well... Not nice. We'll see what happens. Anyway, also uh, another story today, and we just kind of on this segment talk about some silly stuff that happened and maybe some news that you didn't know or news that you can't use, like, you know, Jennifer Affleck now. Anyway, uh, the city is now getting an idea of what the Hamilton Light Rail Transit Corridor will look like when it's finished. We had the story earlier today with more of an update. Here's CHMO's Lisa Pileski. Hamilton's LRT subcommittee has seen how the 14-kilometer, 17-stop line has been envisioned to run through the city, with the tracks running next to the sidewalk in some spots and separating lanes of traffic at other points along the route. Abdul Sheikh, director of Hamilton's LRT office, tells councillors that the existing design plans will be affected by recent decisions made about city streets. One is the main street conversion and the other is a truck route banning on mm-hmm. downtown and completed street guidelines, additional cycling line infrastructure. So there are a number of additional guidelines and motions we have. So we will continue to work with Metrolinks when we are refining the design. The city is aiming to have Main Street at least partially converted to two-way traffic before LRT construction gets underway in 2024. Lisa Pileski, 900 CHML News. And if you're driving around uh, this afternoon and you missed the story and uh, I'm sure you step outside, it's 27 degrees, it's still rather muggy. Well, it's not going away. A heat warning is now in effect for the city of Hamilton. Hot and humid conditions expected in the area for the next couple of days. Daytime temperatures reaching over 30. Humidex values close to 40. Now, it does mean that the city is opening up cooling places and open scrims at City of Hamilton indoor pools will be free of charge. Stay in air-conditioned areas if you can. Drink lots of water to stay hydrated during the heat event. And I would suggest what we just told you about for the City of Hamilton exists for the same thing down in the uh, in uh, our listeners at CFPL in London because I know down there uh, they uh, get a lot of nasty weather, uh, as do we. So, um, and also down in Windsor, so south, southern Ontario, southwestern Ontario, I know that that is the situation as well. There is a risk of a thunderstorm uh, tonight all across the province, but basically the humid X tomorrow, as we say, could hit 39 or 40 degrees. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Well, that puts a cap on this program for this uh, particular day. I want to thank uh, Will Erskine for putting the show together, William Weber for uh, basically uh, keeping us uh, on the air. Because I know that to want to, you know, you're in this studio and you're working on the other side. People don't know all the work that goes involved. People don't know what goes. People don't know that when Alyssa Freeman was ready to go on the air, as you heard her yell at her husband to shut the door and keep the damn dog out. Well, those not not the exact words, but that's pretty much what happened. She was yelling at her dog. It was a classic moment. 
Maybe she's a little mortified by that, but this is live radio and this is what happens. So anyway, we will be back tomorrow on Hamilton Today. Uh, Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson on 900 CHML and 980 CFPL in London. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.